and welcome to this week's Spectator podcast. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week brought a new development in the ongoing scandal over Roger Scruton's firing from a government commission after the Spectator obtained the tapes of the interview that got him fired. So we look at what's on the tapes and what the affair reveals about the state of public debate. Plus, we also take a look at the Irish loophole that allows people to enter the UK without a visa. And finally, we ask, is there anything more creepy than a man who calls himself a feminist? First up, earlier this month, the philosopher Roger Scruton was fired from a government role after public outcry over a series of comments he made in a magazine interview. And this week, the story rumbles on, with accusations of racism, deception, homophobia and shoddy professional ethics flying from both sides. In this week's magazine, Douglas Murray calls the incident a case study in modern outrage with dangerous implications for the state of public discourse. He joins me now along with Adrian Woolridge, political editor and budget columnist at The Economist. So Douglas, your cover piece this week looks at the New Statesman's interview with Roger Scruton and the way that he was then sacked from his government position because of it. And you've managed to get hold of the tape with George Eaton and Roger Scruton. So while I'm sure you're probably not about to tell us how exactly you got that tape, I wonder if you could start by explaining what you think the tape reveals. I think that the facts reveal what I thought from the beginning, which was that the claims that were made about the interview by George Eaton were untrue. And it was not the case that Sir Roger Scruton had made a series of outrageous remarks, but that a journalist intent on a hatchet job had decided to mislead readers about the actual contents of the tape. And I knew this had been happening, or at least was reassured that this was the case, by the fact that the new statesman refused to release the tapes. If the tapes had said what their correspondent claimed, then there was no reason not to release the tapes. But I would say that when people people hear the full tapes, and uh, they will uh, very soon, it'll be clear to them beyond any doubt that this was an example of hatchet journalism and misleading journalism and indeed lies of a kind I think journalists should be incredibly ashamed of and should try to stop happening if we're going to have any remaining class respected in our media and press. And were there any particular quotes that stood out as being particularly egregious? Well, let me give you two. The first is that just after George Eaton has succeeded in persuading government minister James Brokenshire to sack Roger Scruton from his government position, one of the things he was saying then was that Roger Scruton was a homophobe. And actually, if you listen to the tape, George Eaton says to Roger Scruton, you've been accused of homophobia in the past for claiming that homosexuality is not normal. And George Eaton goes on to say that this is a statement of fact. So it's, it's George Eaton saying it's a statement of fact that homosexuality is not normal. A second example, but perhaps the most glaring one in the interview, is that George Eaton asks an incredibly broad question of Roger Scruton. It's along the lines of what do you see as the future for humanity? And uh, he manages to get eventually a, a sort of reflection by Roger Scruton on the nature of the problem of the Chinese Communist Party leadership and their treatment of the Chinese people and what they're doing in China, uh, including the appalling treatment of Chinese Uyghur Muslims and, and the reopening of, second, of, of basically of concentration camps in China. And George Eaton presents this statement as being evidence that Roger Scruton has made racist remarks about the Chinese people as a whole. So this is, this is just outright untrue. And I, at any rate, from the beginning, knew that this was the case because I know that Roger Scruton's not some wild, ranting racist. I knew this was the case, and I'm, I'm just shocked 
that a magazine could actually try to get away with this. I should say, I've got no animus at all against either George Eaton or Jason Cowley, the editor of The New Statesman, or The New Statesman itself, many of whose contributors I much admire. But I think this is the sort of thing that should just not be allowed to be gotten away with. Adrian, you've also written about Roger Scruton's sacking from his government position. What, I mean, what did you make of Douglas's piece and the revelations about the nature of the interview? Well, I was a little bit disturbed about this sort of gotcha journalism. And I'm more disturbed than I was having read Douglas Murray's article about it because he set certain important things in context. I should add that I haven't heard the uh, the tape overall, but it does look as though the worst possible interpretation is being put on what Scruton says and that indeed there's a lot of fishing, a lot of encouraging him to say controversial things. And when he doesn't say controversial things, he's then pushed to try and say in that direction. I think the context of the comments on gay behaviour being, whether it's normal or not, is, is exceedingly interesting in, in the article. But I would say against that, that I think people who have public positions, who are appointed to public jobs, public commissions, as Roger Scruton was, have a sort of obligation to be very, very careful in their choice of words. And one of the things I found rather odd in, in the interview was that Scruton is very disparaging about the Prime Minister and says essentially that she's not the right person for the job and he'd much prefer a Brexiteer, which is an odd thing for somebody who's running a government-appointed commission to be saying. So I, I, I have an absolute belief that freedom of speech matters. I think gotcha journalism is, is appalling. But I think in the Scruton case, there is the nuance that he is head of a, you know, a, a public body and needs to be very careful about his words. Everyone will get the chance to listen to the tape quite shortly, but it's very clear to me that Roger Scruton is, as he always is, very careful with his words. Uh, the interviewer very laboriously tries to tease out from Roger Scruton his views on every potential leadership candidate in the Labour Party and then moves on to every single leadership candidate in the Conservative Party. It, it takes about 20 minutes, and Scruton repeatedly says, well, it's not really my area, I, I don't really want to... you know." He, Eaton asks something about the Prime Minister and, and uh, Scruton says, you know, I don't really want to talk about her. He says, what are her failings? He says, I don't really want to talk about what the failings of the Prime Minister are. I don't, I don't want to get onto the Prime Minister's flaws. I think it's flaws. Uh, the point is, Scruton is incredibly careful. And again, and this, this comes out very strongly in the tapes, he's trying to be kind and helpful to a young journalist from a magazine that he, Scruton, had written for for years... Uh, and this young journalist's in his house, pretending to be there to actually discuss ideas and indeed Sir Roger's ideas and his books, which it becomes clear Eaton has clearly not read at all. Uh, and if there's anything unwise in that, then it's that, yes, perhaps Scruton should should never have trusted a young journalist who insinuated himself into his house, pretending he wanted to do one thing when actually he wanted to do him over. I actually think that once people listen to the tape, it'll become clear that this isn't the sort of a set of misjudged remarks, but simply Sir Roger trying to answer as carefully and diplomatically as possible a set of very leading questions. Is it feasible that somebody with a government position should give no interviews? Well, my own view is that it's, it's, it's one of the things of public life at the moment, that nobody in any position in public life seems able to talk, converse, speculate even in any way without this kind of gotcha behaviour going on, which, as I say, is, is this is just a particularly low-ebb example of that. 
The other thing I should say that, that I liked and valued about Douglas's article was the way that he looks at what is a quite rambling interview which looks at a lot of different issues and Scruton is quite often, as we see, searching for his words. And then the way that is reduced because of the Twitter sphere and because of the way it's reported in the broader press into a, you know, a series of homophobic, racist comments, you know, the, 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 the degeneration of, of, of what is an attempt to make some subtle points into appalling headlines is, is very worrying. And it's, it's not just the Twitter sphere, actually. It's, it's, it's the broader press that seems to, seems to do that. Well, if I may say, I think one of the biggest problems we have at the moment is how can we find a form of public discourse which allows people, including people with government positions and perhaps even eventually people in the House of Commons, certainly members of the public and intellectuals, how, how can we find a form of discourse that allows us to discuss necessary and complicated ethical and moral and strategic issues without the Twittersphere behaviour invading everywhere? And I think we all have to think about that because it's not possible. It's just not possible to have complex discussions with the Twittersphere sword hanging over our heads. And there are, there are only a couple of options. I mean, either we allow this to happen, to keep happening, which means we basically stop public discussion on any important issue, or we have to find a way through this. I think we should try to find a way through this. And, and what do you think the way through it might look like? I think it starts with a presumption that both parties in, for instance, an exchange are, in, are honest uh, interlocutors rather than that one of the parties is a dishonest interlocutor hoping that the other party can say something which they can then dishonestly misrepresent. And the way I've tried to phrase this in the past has been that, you know, the nature of discussion is we try to find a way to speak about things in such a way that an honest person can't honestly misrepresent them and that's that's how we write that's how we speak but we've been doing something else in recent years we've had to become used to trying to find a way of speaking and writing that means that a dishonest person cannot dishonestly misrepresent us and and the problem is that that's that's basically impossible i think we need to have a presumption that free speech is, is the standard against which everything would be measured. We also yeah. need to have a presumption of innocence rather than a presumption of guilt, such as in the case of, of Roger Scruton. He's, he's quite clearly trying to find words. He's searching for words. And onto that is imposed a presumption of guilt. And actually, the presumption you should have is this is an intelligent man trying to discuss an important subject in a way that, that is sensitive. Um, so always have a presumption of, of, of innocence. So you have to demonstrate guilt beyond doubt. And thirdly, I think you should be very, very careful in public life to make sure that various pressure groups don't use things as essentially as a veto over what can and can't be said and what can and can't be discussed. So if a pressure group or somebody who represents a pressure group seizes on something and pushes it very hard, you should be very, very sceptical about that, I think, in public life um, in general. And the, the other thing I think is, is what worries me is um, double standards, that all people from all sides of the political debate should be held up to the same standards. And I think that this is particularly worrying in academia, where there's an overwhelming... Um, preponderance of opinion on the side of the left and where left-wing and right people right-wing people are held up to I think very different different standards either um, formally or more, more, more generally informally 
Douglas, I mean, do you think people having seen what happened to Sir Roger Scruton, try, you know, trying to tackle these dif- difficult subjects, do you think people looking at that will be put off from talking about some of the subjects that he discusses? And and, and do you think that that was actually almost part of the way the interview was presented? I think that any sensible person will have to be very careful about addressing any of the touchstone issues of our day, any of the litmus test issues of our day, because they're already difficult enough. But then you have individuals and individual journalists deliberately making them harder than they should be by deliberately misrepresenting the words that come out of people's mouths. There are a set of heresies in our time which if you can accuse somebody of one of them, you can effectively then accuse them of all of them. It's a trick of saying that anyone you disagree with is a homophobe, racist, Islamophobe, anti-Semite, you get through the whole list of them. And nobody, because nobody wants to even tread on one of these things, because you you tread on one and you'll get the whole menu of accusations levelled at you. And I I think it's profoundly damaging. But but to go back to this point about whether or not homosexuality is normal, I mean, it's an interesting debate. The specifics are... if it were the norm or not is the issue there, then that would be something actually, which, as George Eaton says, many people would agree with Roger Scruton's alleged statement on. But it, it's a statement that can be completely misrepresented so as to basically st- say, which Scruton goes on to say in the interview, that this could be used to portray him as somebody who wants to sort of, you know, stone all gays to death. And this is one of the things, I mean, Jonathan uh, Haidt and others have written about this, but the way in which words and ideas in our society are increasingly being melded and aligned so that there's no difference between the discussion of an idea and an act of violence against an individual that hasn't happened. You know, the the, the, the elision of word and action. And that's just one of the things that's happened in recent years, which again makes discussion of ideas almost impossible. Just finally, Adrian, in, in your piece, you refer to the Twitter mob as a type of thought police. I mean, do you think people are just becoming increasingly concerned about expressing their views, particularly online? I mean, I think Twitter is a perfect sort of outrage machine. Um, but I don't think it's just because of this technology. As I said, with the Scruton thing, you, you see complicated arg- arguments rapidly um, reduced to simple propositions through the you know, press headlines. And I think a lot of it is to do with the sort of issues that, that are at the centre of modern politics. And they tend to be issues to do with identity, identity politics. And people naturally assume that any criticism of their lifestyle choice is a criticism of them. It's not something that can be debated intellectually. It's something that's personalised. That's because of the nature of politics. And I also think that there's a sort of a raging populism at the moment, uh, a suspicion of elites um, and people who present sophisticated, fact-based, nuanced arguments as somehow uh, being dangerous or malign people whose very sophistication is, 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 is something that people should be suspicious of. And that's not something that's, that, that, that's confined to, to the left. As I, I said, in the universities, I think the left does exercise a sort of very worrying hegemony but 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 you know you see that a lot of this on the on the on the right as well from yeah. from 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 conservative populism so this this combination of of populism identity politics and technology is a very very worrying brew and it's particularly because of this that we need to push back very hard against this and in order to push back hard I think we need to have a set of rules I mean a set of assumptions as I say about the importance of free speech about the uh, about the presumption of innocence 
nonsense about the way that journalistic practice shouldn't be based on gotchaism, but should be based on something, uh, some set of higher standards than that. So, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a vital subject and one that needs to be talked about, I think, in a, in a balanced and nuanced way. If I may add uh, uh, to that very quickly, two things. One, there's absolutely no reason for people on the right not to play back a game that the left is successfully playing, which is why it's not a good game for the left to pl play precisely because when it's mirrored from the other side of the pl political spectrum, they're not going to like this at all and none of us will. But, you know, the other point I wanted to make was that there's another potential rule for getting out of this, which I'd just like to float out there. I think it was the American editor and writer Roger Kimball, who some years ago said that the only way to stop dishonest accusations of racism, for instance, is that where somebody levels such an accusation and it's demonstrably untrue, there has to be an equal social price to pay for making the accusation as if that's, that's untrue, as there would be if the person who it was said about was truly being found to be a racist. You know, there, there has to be some kind of equal price to pay. And, and one thing I think we should be able to agree on is that when people actually lie in public life, when, for instance, Dawn Butler, the Labour MP, is quoted saying of Sir Roger Scruton that his views are basically, quote, white supremacist, Dawn Butler, on this occasion, shouldn't be allowed to get away with such an outrageous libel and accusation. You know, there should be a social and political price to pay for deliberately making such outrageous and inflammatory and untrue accusations against other individuals and in the process demeaning the public discourse. And I, I think that would be one way through this. There should be a price to pay for knowingly misleading people and lying about people. Thank you, Douglas and Adrian. Next, is the UK-Ireland border a backdoor to Britain? That's what Jeff Hill writes in this week's magazine, claiming that a legal loophole is allowing migrants to pass into the UK via Ireland without proper visas. Jeff joins me now, along with Joanna Bell, a journalist and former border security agent, to explain more. So, Jeff, in your piece this week, you talk about how people can illegally enter the UK through Ireland. Can you explain to listeners how that's possible? Because it sounds like it's a fairly big security hole. It's possible, Laura, because Britain and Ireland don't have the same visa regime. They do for some countries, but in the case of South Africa, Swaziland, Lesotho, Guyana in South America, Fiji, and there are others... These countries need a very strenuous visa obtained in advance through the British Embassy before they can even get on a plane to Heathrow. Ireland does not require those citizens to have a visa, so you can just go through Shannon on your passport, after which, of course, there's nothing to stop you crossing the non-existent border into Britain. And how, how did you hear about this? I heard people boasting about it. I, I live and work in Johannesburg and across Africa. And uh, I heard people talking about it and how easy it was. Not people who'd been turned down for visas to the UK, but who just didn't want to go through the whole hassle of applying and sending bank statements and tax statements to prove you were going to leave Britain at the end of your stay. So they simply went into Shannon and crossed into Britain. Joanna, you used to work as a customs officer on the Northern Irish border on the Republic side. Was this something that you were ever aware of? Well, to be honest, the customs in Ireland are, are not the same as in other countries uh, insofar as we only really deal with goods. It's actually the police or the guardie in Ireland who deal with immigration. 
and they are quite good at it. I even myself when I was on a train, I saw them regularly stop trains, buses, and check people's documentation. They are very honest in terms of of that, and they do get intelligence. I mean. But it's easier because Ireland is under five million people in it. So it's much harder for immigrants to hide. And we also have a culture where people do squeal on their neighbours to the authorities if they get wind of the fact that they're doing something that they shouldn't be or if they're in the country illegally. So it wasn't uncommon for me to arrive into work on a Monday morning at the in the customs office and have phone calls from disgruntled neighbours who saw their neighbor with a you know a northern registered car and they would say oh they haven't paid the duty on that so it is quite common in ireland for you to 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 do that to your neighbor whereas in england the scale of the people there it's so hard to keep tabs on everybody but there are solutions to the problem Jeff, I mean, you, in your piece, you talk about these questions that you put to the Home Office um, and you say you didn't get many answers back. What exactly were those questions and wh- why do you think they weren't prepared to give you any answers? Well, I asked them how many people who needed visas to go into Britain had been apprehended. Uh, they wouldn't say or couldn't say. What happened to those people? Were they deported? In which case, were they deported to South Africa or Swaziland or were they deported back to Ireland? They couldn't or wouldn't say. And we went through the string of questions and then I said, well, can you not give me answers because you don't know or because this is a state secret? And they said, we can't tell you that either, which did make me think they really just didn't know. They were very nice, they were very courteous and professional, whereas the, in Ireland, the Ministry of Justice that handles immigration gave me answers to all those questions and, and were much more forthcoming. Joanna, is, is there much cooperation between the British and Irish authorities on, on border issues? They, they, they do cooperate and they do liaise with each other. And, you know, whether or not, you know, they, they follow it up from Britain's side, it remains to be seen as... As Jeff said, they they didn't give him any figures or facts. So it's hard for me to say what comes out of this communication. But I know when I was a customs officer, we did liaise with the authorities in Northern Ireland. You know, there's no reason why communication can't still remain if Britain does leave the, the EU. Jeff, I mean, in your piece, you also talk about the other direction and you say that the government in Dublin seems to be much more sort of eagle-eyed about this. Did you get a sense of what exactly they're doing to keep tabs tabs on people there? Yes, indeed. The Irish government seems to be aware that, for example, people from Papua New Guinea can enter Britain without a visa, but need one to go into Ireland. And they are monitoring that border, and they said they do arrest people coming through. Not only that, but 20% of people uh, turned back at Shannon Airport and told you can't enter Ireland are in suspicion they may want to go on into Britain. But Laura, just let me put this in context. The border between Northern Ireland and the Republic is 310 miles long. Now, the road between London and Manchester is only 210 miles long. So it's a third longer than that. And there are more than 200 road crossings between Northern Ireland and the Republic. How do you possibly monitor who is crossing from one to the other? Joanna, as someone who's worked on that border, I mean, is is there a way of monitoring it? I mean, all you can do is do checks, random checks. I mean, you could say the same about 
you know, any country in America. I mean, it, there's something like 275 border uh, entries on the border. And it's easy. Anybody can walk in, you know, but they're always going to be looking over their shoulder. And you could say the same in America. People cross from Canada into America. But you're regularly going to be stopped. And I think in, in Ireland, and I'm not sure what the what they do in Northern Ireland to curb immigration but i have heard of bus that they have done and they are they do seem to be on top of it the problem seems to lie of when they go from the ferry to britain and there is no checks there and that's something that needs to be addressed there's no reason why there isn't a border post there checking people's visas jeff you say in your piece also that there's an easy solution to all of this can you explain what you think that is and whether you think it will happen well, actually, Joanna's got it in one there. The first thing is that you need a domestic check between Northern Ireland and the mainland for people going across on the ferry. Can you show that you have a British driver's license or you have a passport with a visa in it, that you have a right to be in, in, in Northern Ireland or, in fact, to go across the mainland UK? And the second one is, I, I think, the Home Office with their budget of £14 billion. Pounds, hiding answers does not keep Britain safe. Britain leaving the EU if they were to impose visa restrictions on any of the of the European countries, it would still be able to simply flow through from in, by entering into Ireland, going into the north. So my sense is, as a journalist, always I want openness. My sense is that the Home Office needs to take the British people into their confidence. It's no good saying, I'm sorry, we can't or won't answer your questions. This close to Brexit, they need to be saying, this is how we plan to keep the British border safe with Southern Ireland, or with the Republic of Ireland, not by running away. I wanted to add that, you know, there are, there are ways that they could create a system where people could actually come if they use that guest visa program, which gives people a working visa for three years and then boots them out. I think they, tried, they, they did something similar in America, and that seems to have worked to some degree. And Joanna, Joanna, you're right. There's the Chinese and the Indians. If you go to the British consulate in, in Calcutta, you will get a visa to enter both Ireland and the UK. And the same if you go to the Irish embassy in Beijing, you get a visa for both. There's no reason why the two countries can't combine their visa program. And I just don't understand why they haven't. It's just so obvious. Well, I, I just don't think the two governments are getting on very well over the Brexit um, fiasco. So I think that maybe this is probably down the list in things that they need to discuss. Thank you, Jeff and Joanna. And finally, what should we make of men who call themselves feminists? Virginia Ironside thinks not much. In this week's Spectator, she bemoans the rise of the male feminist and suspects that really what they may be looking out for is just themselves. To discuss the issue, we've got the writer, broadcaster and feminist, Julie Bindle, and Ella Whelan, journalist and author of What Women Want, Fun, Freedom and an End to Feminism. Ella, Virginia writes in this week's magazine that men who call themselves feminists are just trying to impress women and show how woke they are. I mean, do you agree with that? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. I think there's been a, a weird rise in support for feminism, which I fear isn't based on a deep understanding of the challenges that women face today or indeed a kind of political basis of 
women's rights, but it's part of the bigger problem of contemporary feminism that it's almost like an identity badge. Uh, as Virginia writes, it's the kind of thing that will signal to someone that you are a good person. It ingratiates uh, you with them. And for that reason, I don't think it's particularly valuable. But while there's nothing wrong with someone calling themselves a feminist, I don't buy into the kind of feminazi, anti-women thing that a lot, quite a few men are reacting to. But I don't think this is particularly valuable either. Julie, what do you make of the term male feminist? There's no such thing as a male feminist. There can be male allies, but often they're just trying to be woke and they're disingenuous. But some of them really are. Some of them are, are, are trying hard to give up their privilege and think about the things that affect women, such as the pandemic of sexual violence, etc. And they might be talking to their friends about how it's not cool to beat up a woman or rape her or have sex with a comatosed woman. I mean, any of that stuff, you know, that's great. And I applaud them, but I don't want to give them any cookies for that. And I certainly don't want to put them on a pedestal and make out as though they're doing something special. They're just choosing not to not to harm women. Big deal. <laughs> and one of the points Virginia makes in her piece is that there are men who call themselves feminists almost in order to establish male superiority. I mean, Ella, do you think do you think that's a fair point? Well, the point that she's making is that it's a politics of protection. So rather than saying I support the fight to make women free, what they're saying is I'm a feminist because, I, you know, oh, I wouldn't want my wife or daughter to experience harm. And it's that kind of caretaker role, the protector role, which Virginia calls victim feminism, which I certainly have criticised a lot most recently in my book, What Women Want which is this idea that the thing that men need to do, which a lot of feminists argue now, is step aside or be kind or listen or act like a nice older brother or a nice dad, that kind of figure, which, you know, isn't about freedom, it's about protection. I think the one thing that is mistaken in the discussion about contemporary feminism, that a lot of it is arguing for men to be allies as julie says but the kind of a nice guy which really isn't political that's the kind of politics of emotion rather than a serious freedom orientated politics but julie i mean is it not the case that it helps feminism if men are on side i mean do we really need to divide it up well i don't know what you mean by helps feminism feminism is a a movement it's a liberation movement where women and girls are at the center in the same way that the civil rights movement put black people, people of colour, at the centre. You know, we are not an all things for everyone. And it makes me very angry when people say, well, how can you be a feminist if you're not a vegetarian? How can you be a feminist if you're not concerned about global warming, etc., etc.? Now, I believe that to be an actual feminist, a real feminist, then you should be on the left because the right cares nothing about equality and liberation movements. But I also think that praising men for quote-unquote helping feminism is as outrageous a thing to do as it would be to praise a white person for not being outwardly racist and then claiming a place at the table as a leader. And this is what increasingly men are doing. They are getting praised like nothing on earth for saying, hey guys, don't hit your wife, it's not cool. What is that about? Ella, do you think there's an aspect of this too where men are saying that they are feminists in order to appeal to women? It's almost like a kind of badge of honour. 
Well, that's what I mean by becoming a kind of an identity. So I'm sure there's lots of guys out there who call themselves feminists because they think it might get them into someone's knickers quicker, you know, uh, which is not a great thing to do. But I think it speaks to the hollowing out of contemporary feminism as a politics that is aimed at liberating women. A place where me and Julie might disagree is that I think that it's very plausible for a man to champion women's rights and women's freedom. If you take an issue like abortion rights, which is the one major area in this country where women are not oppressed, but certainly still have their rights uh, restricted, that's a question of bodily autonomy. And a man could make that argument just as well as a woman could. It's about a universal idea of freedom. I think we, it would be dangerous to go down a kind of a dismissal route of men and a regendering of this. I mean, it's funny to say that in relation to feminism because you automatically think it is a gendered issue. Of course, it is in some aspects. What I think we should push for is a more universal outlook of women's freedom, which is something that both men and women and everyone in between should get on board with. Well... I think that there are reasons why men will say they sign up to feminism. Ella's right. Often it's to get in women's knickers quicker. Often it's to be seen as the kind of superhero who's going to save women. And the one thing, and I mean literally the one thing, I agreed with Virginia in her piece, is about how, you know, men often do this for their own kudos. But having said that, I think... It's important we recognise that although there are these kind of trite, cliched by now, conversations about how feminism benefits men, you know, men are oppressed by patriarchy, it's awful for boys to be told that they can't cry, show their soft side, all of which is true, of course, it doesn't amount to oppression. Patriarchy benefits men. So, of course, to, to lose that privilege means that they lose something of their own power. And you've got to be some pretty sound bloke to actually, you know, want to give that up for social good, for the good of women. Now, I know some men who who live with women who are feminists who are very well trained. You know, they've learned uh, how not to be sexist. They really do care about feminism as a social movement. But it is centrally for women and girls, and we have to have that. And we have to keep insisting upon that because every other social justice movement on the planet centres men. Julie, what did you make of Virginia's point that she comes to at the end where she says, rather than stop men wolf-whistling at women, what we should be doing is encouraging women to wolf-whistle at men? Oh, you know, this is why I'm so against equality feminism, really. You know, I I don't want, for example, a Jew to be equal to an anti-Semite. You know, I don't think that the kind of ladette culture in the 90s where women were told and were telling each other that they were equal to men because they too were spewing up in gutters and grabbing the arse of men in bars. You know, this really isn't the way forward. That's why liberation politics is is far more appropriate for, for women. We have to liberate ourselves from our oppression. Now, one thing that, that uh, Virginia said in her piece is that, you know, women are different but equal. Well, no one is actually being a victim feminist here by saying that we are living with a pandemic, a global pandemic of sexual violence against women and girls by men and boys. If we look at it as a sex class, which obviously Virginia rejected, that if I were raped tomorrow, that the system wouldn't be weighted towards believing him and disbelieving me, blaming me 
and exonerating him. And that's just a fact. Uh, well, I too don't think there's anything particularly wonderful about wolf whistling. Most of the time I react to it when it, the few times that it does happen by saying something that I can't say on this podcast or stamping on the guy's foot. But I, what I worry about is that the current discussion around um, certainly Me Too and about sexual harassment in this country and to a certain extent in America has blown the definition of sex, sexual harassment way out of proportion in terms of we are heading I think towards a kind of prudish society in which sex and sexual interaction and expressions of sexual attraction are becoming taboo and what I would say is that I would like to live in a world in which people can complement each other and flirt and get things wrong and take risks and all of that that doesn't mean that you don't challenge the instances and I think they are becoming fewer and fewer instances in which women do get bad treatment at the hands of men but what we shouldn't do is I think I'm in danger of saying that Julie is perhaps panicking to a certain extent about sexual harassment certainly in this country and and the U.S. What women need to be free is the freedom to be sexually expressive, to have sex, to uh, interact with men and for us not to be afraid. What would be the bad thing to outcome out of all of this is a fear around sex. So as far as Virginia says about wanting to you know, flirt on the tube, whether or not you want to do that is your own thing. But a society which doesn't kind of go down an anti-sex route of taboo and uh, moral fear mongering, I think that's something that should be protected. Well, certainly, if if there was no sexual harassment, then there would be no misinterpretation of that. Women know the difference between flirtation and sexual harassment. When I was 17, I worked in a pub with a father and son who sexually harassed me on a daily basis to the point of hellishness. And I definitely knew the difference between that and the men who came into the bar and flirted. You can choose to flirt back or you can choose not to. Women do know the difference. It's in the same way as we know the difference when we are raped or when we have sex that we just didn't enjoy. And all of this nonsense about how women are now redefining nice, pleasant, jolly experiences as somehow a crime is nonsense. I meet feminists all over the world. This is my life. And I have never, ever come across a feminist that I have worked with and that I am friends with and allies with, who subscribes to this, oh, I'm a poor victim. I think because a man just complimented my my dress or my looks that he's really sexually harassed me and he's going to rape me. Far from it. Have you read some of the articles around Me Too, Julie? Have you read some of the articles? I mean, it has been wild. I applaud your personal conviction to feminism and everybody who knows you knows that you're dedicated to that. But I think it would be slightly disingenuous to say that this hasn't been blown out of proportion. I mean, I've read articles in The Guardian elsewhere about the fact that, you know, women should have separate carriages on the tube, for example, because it's oppressive to be stood up against men, that, you know, looks and comments and jokes. We have policies at universities which penalise people's ability to joke and flirt and stare. The compromise between the two of us is that you can you can at the same time have an absolutely hard iron fist rejection of bad behavior sexual harassment stuff that is wrong and say let's not go too far and start criminalizing perfectly normal human interaction the thing is that an article in the guardian saying i can't possibly share a carriage with a man couldn't have been written by a feminist there are there are there are hundreds of ways to be a feminist 
and most of them are wrong. We are in a situation where you've got Margaret Thatcher being defined as a feminist, Beyonce because she's a strong woman being defined as a feminist, all of these women who act as anti-feminist as you can imagine being labelled feminist because they've got a big mouth and a vagina. And, you know, the thing is that Virginia Ironside, look, you know, this, this piece has been written over and over again. Women who claim to be feminists, who actually are anti-feminist, who are blaming women for things that happen to us, and who are finding themselves in some kind of controversial little niche. It's old hat, it's been done before and it'll be done again. But she's no feminist. Thank you, Julie and Ella. And that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do let us know. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you get your podcast from. It's really helpful for us to have your feedback. And if you pick up this week's issue of The Spectator, you can read all of the pieces discussed, as well as more from Matthew Paris, Lionel Shriver and Julie Birchall. And we've got a special offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, plus a £20 John Lewis voucher. Just go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next week. Thank you.